HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India, and out there there's a real famous dish, a classic dish I should say, it's called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And a little bit of more recent history, just wanted to let everyone out there know that the Heritage Radio Network's 10th anniversary, that's right, we've been on the air or on the waves for 10 years, their 10th anniversary gala will be celebrated on Monday, November 11th in Brooklyn. So if you're in the area... Um, come join us, and tickets are available at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And for 10% off, you can use the code, all caps, TASTE OF THE PAST, and hope you'll join us. It'll be an exciting um, celebration. Also, another thing uh, happening these days is that the Museum of Food and Drink, MOFAD, as it's called, is putting on its first major ex- um, exhibition celebrating African-American contributions to American cuisine, and it's called African-American Making the Nation's Table, curated by Jessica B. Harris. And they need to fund it to make it happen. So if you're interested in donating, you can go to aa.mofad, that's M-O-F as in Frank or Fred, ad.org. Now today on A Taste of the Past, we're going to be talking about American cuisine, or more specifically, what is American cuisine, or 
is there an American cuisine? It's probably one of the most debated questions in food circles, and certainly by food writers. And don't tell me, sure, hamburgers, hot dogs, and potato chips, though they definitely have an important place at the table. My guest today, historian Paul Friedman, author of the recent best-selling book, Ten Restaurants That Changed America, explored the question of our national cuisine and its evolution for his newest book, American Cuisine and How It Got This Way. Paul is the Chester D. Tripp Professor of History at Yale University. He specializes in medieval social history, uh, the history of Spain, specifically Catalonia, and now we must add to that history of American cuisine. He received a Ph.D. in history at Berkeley and taught for 18 years at Vanderbilt University before he went to Yale. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me here. It was not just three years or so ago that you were here talking about 10 restaurants that changed America. This is kind of a nice natural follow to all that, this book. That's right, although I hadn't conceived of the project as a two-book sequence. The cuisine book really follows up on a question implicit in the restaurants book, which is, what is an American restaurant? Then what is the food of the United States, and yeah. how has it changed? Right. And change, or, or, or would we say evolved? Uh, changed changed. Uh, because evolved with some sharp breaks. So, okay. for example, <laughs> I would say, and I argue in this newer book, that the 1970s is a key break because it's the beginning of what would become farm-to-table, arguably the most strong movement within certainly right, the restaurant world. Right, and we will get to that period because there's a lot to say there. But when I said hamburgers, hot dogs, and potato chips, it's sort of like that's, when you ask somebody to define what's what do you think of as American food, I mean, you, things like that come up, apple pie, but as you mentioned before the show, where would you go to get a slice of apple pie these days? I mean, Yeah, and a lot of things that you think of as typically American are not things that people make at home. Uh, there are things like pizza that, or barbecue that have a, you know wonderful regional traditions. And as someone who uh, teaches in New Haven, I think New Haven has uh, marvelous pizza. pizza. Oh, but it's yeah. not something that comes from the, you know, the heart of the populace. It's not something that people make at home. Yes, yeah, so if you ask foreigners... At least until recently, what is American food? They would have just dismissed it, saying it's fast food. So burgers, uh, fried chicken, uh, pizza, and the like. I think now, maybe they have a more favorable impression of eclecticism, that the United States is a place that really pioneered the idea of dining uh, on a different cuisine all the time. <laughs> Every night of the week, something Or, or the first place where you would hear people say things like, oh, I don't want to go to a Thai restaurant. I had Thai food yesterday. Right. Which is not something that other people in Thailand or anywhere else were accustomed to saying. People wouldn't say in uh, Emilia-Romagna, oh, I'm, I'm tired of Italian or I'm tired <laughs> of the Bolognese right. uh, food. It's, it's just not a logical or reasonable statement. That's right. And, I mean, after the French kind of introduced, went through their modernizations of their cuisine and, and Nouvelle Cuisine and you know, Cuisine Moderne came in, really, America really took over as far as pioneering um, 
new waves of, I think, restaurant dining and cooking, for sure. Um, but still, people don't think of that in the restaurant as American cuisine. The funny thing is, I mean, I ask myself, even when I'm writing this up, I say, well, what, what do I think? What do I, when someone says, what's American cuisine? The funny thing is, I could think of a lot of different answers, but I get a visual reaction. And that visual is a dinner plate with three groups of food on it, a meat, a vegetable, and a starch. And those, those pro, the protein, or not meat, but any protein, and, and a vegetable and a starch. And those could change all the time. And certainly they have changed a lot over the years. In fact, the whole concept of dinner has changed a lot over the years. Is that, I mean, when you say, because that's to me, I mean, is that American, it's almost like a Norman Rockwell painting, you know, is that American, is that an, a reaction that, that you get often? It is, but it's a little bit like the apple pie you mentioned. It's <laughs> something that's in people's minds, but if you look at how people actually dine, the, that plate with, say, the meatloaf, the mashed potatoes, and the string beans is more an idea than a reality. Mm. First of all, more money is spent dining out or on takeout or delivery than on cooking at home. That's right. And even cooking at home is really a form of grazing or improvisation since people don't eat with their children very much anymore um, or even with their spouse. People tend to have different needs, diets, dining times, oh, other activities. So busy, you know. We right. don't we sort of collide in the hall. We don't And, and we don't make unlike some other countries, we don't make dining a kind of space, a priority, a place where you actually sit down at a table or where you talk to other people and put your phones away. Again, this is an ideal and lots of magazines will tell you to calm down your life by doing things like that. But if you actually were to do time and motion studies of the American population, you'd see they're not listening to that. Huh, indeed. Well, you wrote about um, as far back as the 1870s, we've been having to defend this, this question about what is American cuisine. The Grand Duke Alexis of Russia declared that the United States has no cuisine. Even then, I mean, he wasn't, there wasn't anything to observe as far as restaurant dining and grazing and, I mean... Right, right. This is an old question. So some of it is that he went on to say that uh, he'd had wonderful meals during his visit in 1871, 1872, but they were all French. (laughs) So fine dining, uh, arguably in this country, was French until the 1980s. If you look at the New York Times restaurant review books of the 1960s, uh, all uh, of the three-star or four-star restaurants, almost all of them were French. Well, and I think that went even later than that. I mean, fine dining, was the definition was French by and large, I mean, for a long time. Yeah, right? I mean, there were exceptions like steakhouses right, right, or right. the Four Seasons, which I wrote about in the restaurants right. book. But certainly the big story of the last 50 years, and not just in the United States, but in the whole world, is the eclipse of French cuisine. Mm -hmm. It's not that French cuisine has gotten worse, but that it's simply lost its authority over defining what is haute cuisine. Right. And in fact, I would say that the ownership of haute cuisine is not exclusively 
or not even predominantly American, I'd say the people who really made the most claims in that area are the Japanese and the Italians. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and the Chinese? Well, I think the Japanese and the Italians have been able to elevate their cuisine so that it's not hard to find places where you spend $300, $400 per person. Chinese food, for a number of reasons, doesn't seem to have taken a big space in the high-end cuisine. There are 40,000 Chinese restaurants, 40,000 or so, in the United States. Uh, Very few of them are particularly elegant. Yeah, and well, and they were really the first... um dining establishment, you know, restaurant establishments, that, and German beer halls, I mean, in the United States. So Particularly to appeal to middle-class yeah. people that were neither kind of working men's cafes on the lower end or Delmonico's, Antoine's, fancy, more or less French places right. on the higher end. Right. So what really defines American cuisine? Well, I argue that it's defined not so much by dishes, like pot roast or New England boiled dinner, as by first regions, then industrial food, and variety. And they're kind of interrelated. So when people answered the Grand Duke Alexis, or indeed if they answered European kinds of criticisms in the 20th century, they would point to our wonderful regional cuisines, New England, the South... Louisiana, most of those have faded. So while Louisiana is pretty much intact, Creole in New Orleans, Cajun in the countryside, the cuisine of New England is relegated to or has a few remnants like clam chowder or Mm, maybe lobster rolls. Lobster rolls are, again, something people don't actually make at home. So what killed regional food is what triumphed in America more strongly and earlier than anywhere else, and that's industrial or processed food. It's not just that it uh, was modern, it's that Americans loved it. They loved it for reasons of health, convenience, and uh, or let's say perceived health, perceived convenience. And it, uh, while the quality of the food might not be so great, Industrial food offered variety. So variety is the third thing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the ice cream might be an industrial product, but it comes in, is it 28 (laughs) flavors? Whatever the the number number, of flavors. (laughs) Uh, Tropicana orange juice, which I like, but it's, you know, it's transported in truck tanker cars. Um, But it comes in high calcium, grove stand, (laughs) some pulp, no No pulp. pulp. This is... American marketing. But, you know, it lumped in, not lumped in, but together with the um, uh, industrialization, you called it standardization and industrialization. I mean, that, which I think um, people can understand that a little bit more, that, you know, these standard, standardized products that that they'll find on every supermarket shelf. Oreos are the same uh, all over the place. And, in fact... If you walk into a supermarket, you will not know what region you are in. That's right. You will know what class of shopper, what the income level of the shopper is. So a Whole Foods looks very, very different from a lower-end supermarket. Right. But you don't know whether the Whole Foods is in Florida or in 
the state of Washington. There are a couple of supermarkets that have that do you know, they'll retain a little bit of their own identity with certain products in the maybe in the middle aisle or something. But you're right, generally, it's it's the same you know coast to coast. And in fact, it's an interesting um, phenomenon. This uh, maybe because in New York City, so many people kind of live in food deserts where there's no access to good shopping or any any products. But this new supermarket opened up in Brooklyn, Wegmans, Wegmans right? And cause, I mean, we're talking, you know, mammoth, huge supermarket, caused such a stir. People were waiting in line practically overnight to be the first ones. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. I don't, there's something I don't understand about certain things. When Ikea opened in Red Hook, it was the same thing. Same thing. Ikea was like uh, familiar to people in the 90% of suburban America for years and it's as if New York was some kind of impoverished region <laughs> or a, a small town that got its first major league sports team. Uh, yes, I think New York is very strong in places to buy artisanal harissa and, and not very good as a place to just stock up on... A box of Cheerios. A box of Cheerios. <laughs> right. I mean, you can buy like a little box of Cheerios and carry it home. Right, right. Exactly. Um, you know, but it's interesting because supermarkets on their own, not just in New York City, but supermarkets in general, I mean, they represent really um, a couple of your uh, points. Well, variety and, and standardization or industrialization kind of are, can come together. But you look, you go to a supermarket and there is everything you would expect to find. You can go to the shelf and you know you're looking for, you know, a particular product, a canned, canned corn, frozen, you know, products. Um, but it also offers variety. We don't want just one choice of things. We want to have many choices, and you know, and, and the supermarket offers that as opposed to the small, you know, little market that offers one thing and that's it. Um, so I I liked that that you brought that in that you know the variety and the standardization or the industrialization. Um, it really marks American. Choices. American yes, dining, the right? supermarket, average supermarket has something like 40 or 50,000 items. So no one can say that uh, standardization means that there's no variety. On the other hand, the standard items are always there. Right. They don't tend to run out of um, saltine crackers. <laughs> right. um, uh, my supermarket, uh, and, and of course I may have adjusted to a certain kind of mentality although I'd blame my cat. I mean, my cat likes <laughs> Fancy Feast, uh, white meat, chicken, Florentine. And so I'm annoyed when they seem to have run out of it and it takes weeks to come back. But uh, in compensation, just Fancy Feast alone, there, there, must, be, there must be 30 different varieties. Hmm. Well, you know, the, the, you mentioned um, something, and, I, and I'm not, I want you to explain this a little bit more. Um, American gigantism. Is this the industrialization? Is this the standardization? Is this the you know the the chains and franchises what of wanting the same tastes and flavors coast to coast? Yes. So the advantage from the point of view of the companies is that uh, it's a very large country with a large population. So if you get a standard or iconic brand, you have a lot of people 
to sell it to. So after the Civil War, you start to have the consolidation and success of large companies, Post and Kellogg's in cereals, Heinz in pickles and relishes, uh, Kraft in packaged cheese, Oscar Mayer and uh, Armour in packaged meats. So that is certainly the development that continues unbroken into the 1970s. Now, a lot of these brands are languishing and have been languishing for a long time, brands like Campbell, because they're seen as industrial, predictable, and not very high-quality products. Mm. So the artisanal, the small, things advertise themselves as, if not literally handmade, as uh, carefully made or made near you or... Uh, made with loving care by real people and so forth. The strategy for companies like Campbell's or the big soda companies is to buy up these artisanal brands. They have trouble maintaining their artisanal image, however. So there has been a change. I don't think that Americans, by and large, embrace gigantism with the same enthusiasm. You can see this with McDonald's. Mm -hmm. When McDonald's first became uh, a national brand, coast to coast, and when they stopped saying how many they had sold. sold, (laughs) In the 1960s, they would still say 19 million sold, and then it was billions and billions sold, and then they they abandoned that Mm -hmm. mercifully. But uh, at that time, McDonald's was delightful. It was cutting edge. It was youthful. Now, it's not as if people don't eat at McDonald's. Uh, They're they're selling burgers uh, by the millions, even as we speak. But it's seen as a utilitarian thing. It's it's seen as um, uh, a convenience, a necessity. I think 80% of their customers uh, buy drive-through. So it has lost the sense of delight and modernity and is if not dreary, at least routine. Mm. Well, regionalism, you said, re- so regionalism is, is one of the three main uh, factors that identify American cuisine. You said, but do we still really have, you know, well, you, well, you mentioned uh, the crab, the London, Baltimore and its crab boils and, and um, New England and, it, you know, lobster. And, um, do we really have a lot of regionalism left I would say that we have a lot of regionalism. Some of it is new and invented. I was just in L.A. last week, and um, I had an event at a bookstore located in a little mini mall downtown where there's a Nashville hot chicken place mm. that whose name is Howlin' Ray's. Now... Your listeners will know, I'm sure, this place. <laughs> Howling Rays, Howling Ricks. And, and the line was two hours long. Outside. Wow. So, but yeah. Nashville hot chicken, and I know since I lived in Nashville for, as you said, 18 years, Nashville hot chicken is a kind of modern marketing concept. There was such a thing. There was one place called Prince's Barbecue Chicken mm-hmm. Shack that developed the idea, but it was then marketed first to Nashville and then to the world. So this is a kind of... I'm not, it's not a fake regional dish, but it's a modern. Let's say it's a 
constructed regional dish. Right. Um, yes, there are plenty of regional foods, but they're often either quirky, like Cincinnati chili, or scrapple in Philadelphia. They're usually not made at home, and they're more, I would say, gimmicks or... Uh, uh, intriguing things rather than the reflection of what people really eat. The open question that I see within your question that the future will perhaps determine is, is the farm-to-table movement going to revive regional cuisine? That And that that's what I want to talk about when we come back after the break, this whole shift. And we'll talk about that era and that birth of American cuisine, perhaps, <laughs> when we come back. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Paul Friedman, the author of the newly published American Cuisine and How It Got This Way. Uh, and how it got this way. Well, we just heard a commercial for Wisconsin cheeses, and certainly one of our sponsors, one of our big sponsors. And um, that is a representation of some regional specialness, whether, and not invented because they are, you know, a milk producing, grazing, you know, a, a, a farming area. But you think Wisconsin, you think cheese, right? American cheese. Uh, what about other regional, like the South? Now the South is imbued with a lot of 
right now a lot of discussion on cultural appropriation and you know where what's who brought the southern foods and um, and certainly recognize that so many of the dishes were brought over and or, and made and prepared by the slave trade and um, and yet there is really a lot of southern cuisine in both in many ways and and within the south there are probably I would say four different regions or five different regions of, least, of true yes. southern cuisine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there again the question is, will the rebirth of local seasonal food lead to a revival of regional cuisine? And mm-hmm. this has happened at some, certainly at some restaurants like uh, Frank Stitt's Highland Grill in Birmingham, Alabama, or the restaurants... Um, that were created by Sean Brock, first mm-hmm. in Charleston, South Carolina, and now in, uh, Nashville. in Nashville. Right. So the ingredients focus revives regional things, not just rice because it was grown in South Carolina, but the kind of rice that used to be grown, the revival of heritage breeds, right. um, tomatoes in the Hudson River Valley, for example. But... I'm not sure that this can be imitated without a basis in what people cook at home. And so then we get back to the question of how much do people cook at home? How much time do they spend? Uh, how much care do they take uh, with that? Hmm. Well, I mean, you did, you identified in the book and, and wrote, uh, I think, very uh, astutely about the major shift, or, or if you will, the defining era of the 70s, um, the 70s, which was also called the birth of the American food movement. And this has, I think, as you just mentioned, has kind of continued, and I think we're seeing even more of it, and a little different now, as you say. You know, there's the farm-to-table movement that occurred, but people thinking, aside from what the movement is that you rec- one recognizes and or, or follows or not, um, there's more thought to the food that we eat, the food we, I think, that we put on our plates and put in our mouths, at least by particular people who maybe do spend more time shopping for food and, and cooking at home. Well, as the Heritage Radio Network identifies its mission as not just deliciousness, but also sustainability and right. equity. So the sustainability and equity parts, they're not new, but the emphasis on them Uh, has returned more recently. In the 1970s, a lot of the original impetus to change how we eat came from a critique of corporate impact of the food industry on the environment. So the first Earth Day in 1970, or Francis Lappe's Diet for a Small Planet, Mm -hmm. I emphasize the contribution and importance of the hippies, who certainly talked about sustainability and the environment, I think maybe less equity in terms of globalization, who works, who suffers, who uh, suffer the unintended consequences of different changes in how people eat in countries far away. But still, what the hippie movement lacked and what people like Alice Waters or the other chefs active in California at the time contributed was the notion of deliciousness. Mm -hmm. So hippie food was morally good, sustainable, and 
a critique of the food industry. But as someone who went to UC Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley in the 1970s, uh, I remember the food as not being particularly delicious. <laughs> and and not, not because it was necessarily bad, but its being delicious was regarded as a kind of bourgeois preoccupation. Mm. Well, and that, that you should eat, and this is a venerable American concept, you should eat for reasons of health rather than for reasons of sensual pleasure. Somehow Americans have not really received this easily. And yet a lot of processed foods were, were involved in that, so it wasn't exactly eating for health, as we, as we found out. And, and people still, even though we have this education push going on to stay away from processed foods and fight obesity, and um, the processed foods are still huge in our... And no country has more diet books or more obesity <laughs> than that, ours. And isn't that something, yeah. Interesting. Um, you had mentioned that as far as tastes, America, there is something that you kind of pinpointed that Americans, as far as American cuisine, there's that taste combination that Americans crave, and that's the sweet and the spicy and the salty. Preferably together. So like okay. barbecue sauce. There you go. Or okay, the uh, popularity of sriracha. Mm-hmm. Um, imported or pseudo-imported, actually manufactured here, but (laughs) based on uh, a kind of Thai Mm -hmm. aesthetic. A lot of um, American food, or American tastes rather, become clearer if you're an American and go abroad for a period of time. What is it that you find yourself missing? Or conversely, what are the things that foreigners visiting here can't stand or are puzzled by? So to start with the second... The way Americans like sweet ingredients outside of dessert. Once more barbecue sauce, which is actually sweet as Mm -hmm. well as spicy. Or those kinds of bottled salad dressings, what is called French dressing, which no one in France would ever uh, acknowledge as French because it's too sweet. Or ham with some kind of honey or maple glaze. glaze. Mm -hmm. They eat ham all over Europe, but nobody, nobody has it that way. Or Chinese food in the United States, what's called sweet and sour is basically sweet. That's right. And its Chinese equivalent is quite different. So there are some specific foods like maple syrup or peanut butter that almost no one else in the world likes. But more it's a kind of aesthetic in which uh, the sweet, the spicy, and the salty are blended. It's interesting, and as you said, people who go and live abroad for a while, what, you know, what do they crave? What do they, what do they want? What do students ask their, you know, friends or parents to bring them if they're on a study abroad program? Mm-hmm. And peanut butter is peanut number butter, one. Peanut butter, I would say, is number one. But when I did my dissertation research in the 1970s in Catalonia, what I missed and what I did ask my parents to bring was hot sauce. Hmm, interesting. The food was great. I gained probably 12 pounds while I was there, and I lived with a family. But every, everything uh, was, there was maybe garlic, rosemary, parsley, but if you actually wanted Tabasco or any other kind of hot relish, you simply could not find it, and, and, and my parents brought it to me. And the people I lived with, whom I have maintained contact with and are still close friends, still make fun of me for this. <laughs> they still think it's hilarious that somehow... You needed hot I, sauce on everything. Exactly. <laughs> and there are still many people who, and I can think of a couple personally, that do, still do that. 
Um, you going back to uh, particular dishes and regional, the regionalism. You you looked um, very carefully at a lot of community cookbooks in that whole area of community cookbook cookings. But what did they reveal to you? What did you What did you learn from that? These are cookbooks put together by women usually belonging to a church or a social club like the Junior League, often to raise money for well, I think a that's cause. the definition, is to, you know, to raise funds, right? Right, right. Although now some of them are just expressions of a kind of corporate identity. Hmm. So there are thousands of these. The catalog that I've seen that libraries rely on lists 5,000 from the Civil War when they begin uh, just until the 1960s. These, I thought, when I started working on them, would reflect regionalism, so that a cookbook put together by a church in Mississippi would reflect Southern cuisine, or one put together in Texas would reflect what people were eating on the Great Plains. But they're, like supermarkets, much more standardized than you might expect. They are dateable, so if they've got Pepsi-Cola salad, they're probably post-war, but before 1970. If they have uh, silver cake or some of these desserts that were popular in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, but then drop out. Where you get some kind of funny regionalism is that pimento cheese sandwiches Mm -hmm. are big in all of them in the early 20th century, Mm -hmm. but then it's in recent so years, good. <laughs> they, it's good, but now they're thought of as Southern. Yeah. And Southern uh, cooks, even restaurant chefs, trot out pimento cheese as if it was a regional specialty. It is now, but that's because people stopped making pimento cheese. So the community cookbooks are great for understanding a national middle class or upper middle class cuisine and how it evolves. Uh, to take a... New York example, East Hampton has a number of cookbooks put out by the Ladies' Village Improvement Society. And in the early years, this reflects an eastern Long Island community that is partly artists, partly summer people, and partly people who live there. So it's got a lot of seafood, uh, it's got seafood pies, it's got a number of things that might be described as Long Island regional foods. By the 1960s, when the volume has an introduction by Craig Claiborne of the New York Times, who was a resident in uh, East Hampton, it's mostly summer people who are the assumed audience. There are a lot of brunches. There's a lot of fresh ingredients. There's no, there's no canned or frozen ingredients. Hmm. There's a lot of quiche. There's a lot of kiwi. It reflects its time and its class, but it it does not necessarily have to be Long Island. It could be well off Dallas. Yeah. Well, these people who write the community, who contribute a recipe to the community cookbook, I mean, they may have come from you know, another coast and then moved to an area. I know just from my own involvement in community cookbooks too that you get yeah and you get the very similar things the seven up cake and then you know different things like that using soda in sauces um i I think also that the community cookbook contributors can't be too pretentious right they've got to toe a certain kind of line it's got to be an interesting dish 
but if you, and it's got to be convenient dish. If you make it too difficult or too esoteric, then you're kind of spoiling the curve. Right, right. Something that no one's ever heard of? No. Give me no, the, but know. like hamburger stroganoff. Yeah, or Mrs. Smith's favorite, you know, right. pumpkin apple cake. Pie, yeah, apple for, pie. Yeah, apple pie. To get back to that. <laughs> right, there you go. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because as a country that was founded on immigrants, basically, um, and now there's a new movement of immigration for many other reasons, and there have been different waves across the way. It's it's tough to really, I think, align a particular food or a particular taste to being strictly American. They're all, as you said, invented traditions or bastardized uh, uh, dishes of, a, of another cuisine, a foreign cuisine. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, you can't tell me that spaghetti and meatballs is Italian. It's not Italian. It's, it's American, you know, Italo-American, but it's definitely American, that's for sure. Um, it's where, my question to you is where, so where are we now? How did it get this way, and where are we? We don't really like homogeneity and blandness that much, do we? No, although we may still have bland ingredients that then we jazz up with uh-huh. hot sauce hot or brennaise sauce, right. sauce or uh, any kind of relishes. I think we are in a place where the issues of equity and deliciousness and sustainability come together so that I also think we're in a place where these preoccupations are not just coastal elite Movements, the fact that Target or uh, um, Walmart pay attention to, say, where their eggs come from Mm -hmm. or get rid of certain kinds of um, mistreatment of animals' products or the fact that meat, plant-based things that taste like meat are becoming popular, or, you know, the Burger King is selling them. I I think that's a sign that these issues have a real resonance across the country. That's the hopeful part. The non-hopeful part is uh, the environmental impact of takeout and delivery service is not good. The health impact of the fact that people don't cook their own food is not good. The inequality of the overall economy and society mm-hmm. has terrible impact on nutrition. So uh, the cliche would be the best of times, the worst of times. I'd, I'd like to move a little bit beyond cliche, but that's certainly the first thing that occurs to me. But it's, it, there is, I mean, you, this whole ball that you just, of wax, I don't want to say ball of wax, but this whole System. System that you describe. Nexus. It is, yeah, it, that is American cuisine. That's where we are. That's, that's right. That's and I end is. the book by saying that what has always characterized America, besides some trends that are not particularly likable, is exuberance and inventiveness, inventiveness. and receptivity to novelty. And that doesn't always work in cuisine because that sometimes means weird kinds of experiments or an emphasis on novelty rather than flavor, but it certainly keeps you guessing. Right. Certainly is not a stagnant cuisine. No, not by at any all. means. Yeah. And then we have changed over over the centuries. And and very quickly, yeah. even over the last few years. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, Paul, it's a it's a revelation to 
to read a lot of these things in the book. Oh, I, before I finish, I just have to go over a list because it'll it'll make things pop into people's minds. And you include this a list in your book of American dishes as published by um, Philip Schulz in American as Apple Pie. As early, as late, as recent as, the, and he published it in the 1990s. But his list, I'm not going to read it all, but you'll get the idea. Go from apple pie to baked beans, uh, brownies, chili, chocolate cake, chocolate chip cookies, coleslaw, fried chicken, hash, meatloaf, pancakes, uh, pot pies, pot roast, stew, and waffles. Well, that American waffles. Yeah. So... As you can see, it's an interesting list. We could, each one of us looking at that could add probably, you know, in, on top of our head, maybe six, ten more dishes that we would consider old-fashioned. Old-fashioned, that's the other thing. Old-fashioned old or food. comfort now. Comfort food, call it's called. Right, exactly. right. Um, but these are indeed sort of dishes that were recognized and established as American food. Hmm. Try to find some of them, though. <laughs> okay, I'm on that search for apple pie. You've or got even me. pot roast. <laughs> pot roast. Well, when was the last yeah, time you yeah, actually yeah. made or had it? I mean, well, diners. Not you. Yeah, diners. Well, that's just. I, I don't mean, think diners have pot no, roast. No, diners anymore. don't. They, diners serve, you know, diners all have kinds falafel of. In, and stuff, exactly. Right? That's what I was going to say. They have tacos and falafel. I mean, they all kinds of international food. So, it's it's interesting. We have come a long way, and yet. Maybe it wouldn't be bad to take a couple steps back and do uh, more cooking at home. I'm a historian. I have an interest in the past, so yes, I agree. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights on that and for writing the book. Again, the book is American Cuisine and How It Got This Way by Paul Friedman. Thanks, thank you, Paul. Linda. It's been delightful to talk with you. And this has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.